Hello and welcome to Mistakes We Made with me, Chris Sloney. And me, Frank Talbot. The Dream Team, not Alex and Alex this week. We're mixing it up. There's more and more people coming involved. Um, so anyway, this is our second of what we would consider our conceptual episode. So we had John Kampfner talking about politics. And this week, we're going to be talking about one of the most sacred cows, ESG. Frank, what are your thoughts on ESG? Let's kick off with that. <laughs> Just throwing me in the deep end. I think I, like many, have got some, uh, some level of ESG fatigue. Uh, lately, but actually talking to Desiree really uh, sort of reignited my, what's the word? Interest. <laughs> interest. Euphemistic interest. Well, you've, you've hinted in there. So our guest today is Desiree Fixler, who uh, was already a big deal. She was head of ESG and sustainability at DWS, but became even more prominent when she kicked back against the company's greenwashing following her dismissal in 2020. As you will hear, she doesn't particularly care for the term whistleblower, when she contested DWS's green credentials in a Wall Street Journal article but she does have a lot to say on this topic. So during our chat, we'll cover a lot about what people get wrong on ESG and sustainability. And believe me, there is a lot. But before that, as always, we've got Jamie Catherwood with another tale from history, another major mistake from times gone by. Um, he's going to shine a light on nefarious deeds, and this one madly actually involves shining a light, but it's not on nefarious deeds, it's on treasure hunting. So before we do the full intro for Desiree, let's go to Jamie with this week's take. In 1687, treasure hunter William Phipps returned back from a very successful expedition in search of a sunken ship rumored to be full of diamonds and silver. The ship did have treasure, 32 tons of it. The investors that funded Phipps' journey received a 10,000% return on investment, setting off a wave of excitement in London's investment community. There was an explosion in new sea diving engine companies that claimed to help treasure hunters stay underwater longer and make it easier to find treasure because they could spend more time looking for it. Almost all these companies were fraudulent and never replicated Phipps' original success. There was an explosion in IPOs for non-diving related companies as well, such as the White Paper Company, which rose 3x in four years, the Linen Company, and other companies developing quote, technology for strange things like lights used to catch fish. Then in 1696, there was a crash of epic proportions. In 1693, there were 140 English and Scottish companies listed on the exchange. Yet by 1696, 70% of those companies had been wiped out. Absolute carnage. Uh, that was Genby. Thank you. I, I love that so many people will be gullible enough to think that you could be just finding treasure anywhere. <laughs> But I think it's because one person did. It's the, it's the ultimate hype cycle. It's amazing. But anyway, not trying to do a tenuous leap from hype cycle to hype cycle. Let's get back onto ESG. So as stated, our guest today is Desiree Fixler. And we'll be back at the end to give you our thoughts. Jumping straight in. I mean, we are going on this slightly conceptual route. We thought you were a great person to ask this question. ESG is everywhere. It's something that has become much more prevalent, even in the, the decade that I've been in the industry. But what are the mistakes? What are the biggest mistakes that you see other people making? And what are the, the lessons that people should be learning? Sorry, that's the biggest question to possibly open with, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I think the one of the biggest mistakes in ESG is thinking that ESG statements and disclosures are not governed by the same regulatory rules as financial statements. Uh, so if you say something um, you know, about your ESG practice, your profile, um, assets under management strategies, 
make sure you have the evidence, the analytics, the data behind it. And I think today, um, a, a lot of you know financial institutions made some mistakes in thinking, well, you know, it's non-financial anyway. ESG is just really more aspirational, and so very big bold statements and even pledges were made without much thought about the substance or the evidence that can be documented behind it. As an example, um, we're committed to going net zero. Um, climate action or diversity and inclusion is our number one priority. We have sophisticated risk assessment systems. We have best-in-class ESG integration practices. Um, statements like that, you have to prove, right? And I think that's been one of the biggest mistakes, and that's why you know, the regulator has jumped on that because let's let's just be clear, right? Misrepresentation, misselling, misstatements is 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 just governed under, you know, is is caught by fraud, right? And fraud or misrepresentation can happen in any asset class. It could be fixed income, right? It could be cryptocurrency and it could be ESG. And I think people kind of disconnect it you know, with, you know, just very common sense practices. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is that disconnect? Because is it because ESG is this sort of aspirational improvement thing rather than a tangible benefit? Or is there something more at play there? Well, I personally think ESG can be tangible, but I think the mindset was in fact that it's it's aspirational. It's about the company doing good. They almost, you know, a lot of companies had ESG set up going into communications or marketing. Let's not forget that. You know, some companies had ESG grow out of their CSR groups, right? So it was almost thought of as philanthropy, right? The the the, the, the corporations, um, you know, uh, philanthropic and, you know, kind of socially responsible practices as opposed to being integral within the operational business and governed by the same kind of rigor that you have on financial disclosures. So do you think there's a, a bigger reckoning coming that, that hasn't you know yet occurred? Oh, the reckoning, no, I think the reckoning has occurred. Um, I mean, we've seen not only, you know, large scale ESG investigations um, from the US and from Germany, uh, but, um, you know, also enforcement actions. Um, and, and, and by the way, you know, in, in Germany, um, you know, there was a police raid. That's criminal, right? So it's not just civil violations, but, you know, we're now witnessing criminal investigations and enforcement actions. So no, no, that the wake up call is is there. Do you think then that, that this is going to stop asset managers going down this route for fear of tripping up? No, um, I think this is the healthiest thing that could have happened. I mean, it's certainly um, a, a lot of corporate executives have kind of hit the pause button on the fast track conveyor belt of ESG products and services and doing a deep dive, you know, and looking, you know, internally to say like, how much integrity do we have behind our statements, our labels, you know, our, our, our marketing material, right? Let's just make sure we're actually delivering on what we're saying we're doing, right? And I think that assessment is happening uh, right now. That's healthy. We needed that correction. There was way too much hype and rhetoric. Um, uh, it, there was irrational exuberance in this market. Um, and so this type of correction, this reassessment, 
right? And and now kind of this refresh um, was very needed. I- I'll tell you why I don't think that this is going to subdue the market, and that's because of you know the recent. Just take a look at the the U.S. the recent legislation bills that have been passed. You have the Inflation Reduction Act that might not be that inflationary reducing, but it certainly is the uh, a seismic change and one of the biggest, most aggressive steps the U.S. has made in climate action. Um, you know, you have initiatives like the ISSB to provide accounting standards for companies for their ESG disclosures, right? So just looking at, you know, legislation, regulation that's coming out, um, I think there's still tremendous opportunities, but the mindset has has shifted. You can no longer just approach uh, ESG with glib statements, off-the-cuff statements, right? You need to ensure that these statements and these pledges, right, are backed up with real action, real analytics, real evidence. We we sort of talked about it, because you haven't actually talked about your personal experience, because you were someone inside, and I mean, you've come to prominence because you were very senior at DWS and, and within Deutsche Bank for doing this, and then following that, you, you were the whistleblower. I mean, you were keen to get out and explain people. I mean, you've, and I know people wouldn't be associated with more than being just one thing. But I'm interested to know how much in terms of people within the industry, do you think there are more people like you who want to expose what is going on in the reality, but feel they can because the momentum is too far one way? Yes. I mean, of course, um, you know, you know, folks working at, you know, in at financial institutions, um, you know, there's no doubt they saw some, you know, bad practice um, and they un- I'm sure they understood that their C-suite or CEOs didn't fully understand, um, you know, what is needed to fulfill a net zero pledge, right, in front of 2050. And so, yes, I I think there was largely um, a lot of frustration, but, you know, people are afraid to speak up, right? It's, there's no doubt. I I would go so far as to say, there is a more fragile speak-up culture today than there was in the 1990s when I started in investment banking, right? People are far, there's more fear, they're far more scared, right? In spite of all of these, you know, speak-up culture propaganda bombardments, you know, from from HR groups um, and the implementation of whistleblower hotlines, I think that, you know, you know corporate executives um, struggle right, to speak their mind and challenge uh, management. But what I'm hoping is that, you know, my my story is a cautionary tale for any, you know, management group that thinks, right, you know, they can crush whistleblowers, right, or or genuine corporate executives, right, that are speaking up. And the, and the reason why you're speaking up is to protect the firm, right? You know, you are you know, the firm's best protector, and that that's the, somehow there's this disconnect with whistleblowing, I mean, first of all, you know, just to set the record straight, I did not go outside of DWS or Deutsche Bank, right? I spoke up within the company. I kept it within the company, right? When my CEO ignored me, I went to the supervisory board. I went to Deutsche Bank, right? DWS actually took this matter, ignored me, and they brought it to Bloomberg in the press, right? So they took the first step in the media. I then responded appropriately. Um, but 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 again, you know, I, I think that this is 
this is a cautionary tale of what not to do when you have corporate executives really trying to, you know, improve, reform, progress the company and protect the company. And look, you know, at the end of the day, right, it was a was a horrible experience for me and was awful. But, you know, I got through, I'm on the other side now. And my professional career has dramatically changed, but I'm still, you know, very busy enjoying what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, DWS is mired in um, so many regulatory investigations. It knocked off um, around 20% of their market cap, took out their CEO. Um, so I I'm hoping that, you know, and I want to share my personal experience because, you know, I survived it. It wasn't pleasant. I'll be, you know, straight about that. But I did get to the other side. And it's so important if you work in ESG, you have to speak up. Right? If not the sustainability officer or ESG heads, then who's going to do it? There is a G in ESG. That's the most important letter. It's all about governance. Do you see similar structural problems in other firms? Have you seen, I'm not saying whistleblowing specifically, but you've mentioned the legislation that's coming down the pipe. How exposed is the asset management industry to getting it wrong because of who sits in the positions of power? who don't understand it, who just think it's another marketing label. Well, I, again, like I think, you know, the investigations that have been had, you've had, you know, Bank of New York, you had Goldman Sachs, DWS Deutsche Bank, right? Um, I, 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 I do think, you know, I, I speak to <laughs> a fair few people um, and, and, and I do think there's a mindset shift today. Um, I, I think that, We've seen, you know, the rhetoric has, has toned down. And I think people are really grappling internally to ensure there's, there's been or there is integrity to their statements and their marketing material. I've also heard from um, a number of leading um, uh, lawyers um, that a number of asset managers are reclassifying their funds. So under SFDR, there are a variety of classifications, and what they're doing is notching their, their fund products down by right? taking an Article 8 fund to 6 maybe or an Article 9 to 8. So that is happening. There is evidence that you know the, the C-suite is listening. I know that, that there is also a mad search to ensure that corporate boards have sustainability experience, that there's a board member, right, that is responsible for this. So I also, I'm hearing that organizational structures are changing. Do you think uh, SFDR 8 and 9 are good enough? You know, no. is, there, is, there, is there not room for interpretation there as well in, in that? I, if you say, listen, we're going to be SFDR 8, but what does that mean? Um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, look, I look at it this way. It, it was well-intentioned. I understand that. Right. Unfortunately, um, I think the approach to classify in this regard um, in such an ambiguous manner um, actually enabled it did the opposite of what it was trying to, to, to do. It actually enabled greenwashing. Right. Because it became a box ticking exercise. And if you can tick certain boxes, you know, everything started to become it. It felt like almost everything was becoming. Article six, eight, and nine, right? And and 
asset managers could take cover and say, I'm not greenwashing. Look, I've ticked all the boxes. It's Article 8. You know, it's all good. It's all there. Totally disconnected with, you know, <laughs> what these definitions, you know, how it's being marketed to investors because investors have a very different interpretation. So I think I think the better way ahead is is the U.S. approach. And that's about clear disclosure, not about labeling, right? Well, I mean, they're proposing a, a label rule or a names rule to ensure that, you know, the name of the product actually, you know, ties in with the components and the strategy of the product. But, but really, the U.S. is about um, full transparency and disclosure. It's not prescriptive. The U.S., the European approach, I think, um, went too far in being prescriptive um, to cause asset managers to be even more aggressive with their labeling, right? Disconnecting from the strategies and the components within those portfolios, disconnecting with how portfolio managers were integrating ESG factors throughout their decision-making pr processes within the investment process. And I do think that it led, um, I think a lot of asset managers felt that they had cover from greenwashing allegations because they felt they had conformed to SFDR. So I, I think there should be, I think Europe should rethink that whole, the whole taxonomy and SFDR. And my last statement is, I think that enforcement actions are just as important as, as regulatory, as regulation. And I think that the German police raid on DWS and Deutsche Bank over ESG, potential ESG securities fraud, went further to, to deter greenwashing than this whole mother load of SFDR and taxonomy rules. Can I ask, because we've talked around again slightly, there's, an, there's almost a culture wars element now, especially in the US. I mean, on the editorial side, we seem to be writing about BlackRock having to defend its credentials in this area almost constantly. And then we've seen the rise, I'm sure you have as well, of Stride Asset Management, and these people are positioning themselves as anti-woke, anti-ESG, because there is a rich scene to to mine there in terms of public discourse. Is there in any way useful for ESG to have these actors who are also asking these questions? Or is that just polarizing the debate and making it tougher for anyone to do anything meaningful? Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I, I, I kind of see those folks as like, they've just adapted another marketing strategy, right? It's their narrative to sell their products. Um, but I think, uh, you know, so so I'm not concerned about it. I don't see that as a long-term trend. It'll be there. There'll always be, you know, contrarian type investors. And that's fine. That's healthy. Right At the end of the day, right, it is up to asset owners, retail and institutionals to decide how they want to invest their money. And, you know, you know, to which asset manager or allocator they want to go with. Um, but, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, sustainable investing, um, investments in clean technology, clean energies, it's here to stay. With this monumental, you know, passing, I mean, the, the you know, don't underestimate the, um, the importance um, of the Inflation Reduction Act. It is mobilizing hundreds and billions, if not eventually trillions of dollars into this space, right? So, you know, this ship has sailed. It's happening. The SEC is likely 
to come out with some sort of climate risk disclosure rules. Um, and yes, there is a contrarian view that's that is wants to call ESG, you know, or in they, they're that they're positioning themselves as anti woke, right? That ESG is just this woke political movement. It is not. There are hundreds of billions of dollars behind it now that the U.S. government just unleashed. Um, and and so so I, I I think the pushback, right? To be quite honest, I think it's healthy. We needed more questioning. It, this, this market a year ago was too one way. There was ESG, irrational exuberance, euphoria, um, and and personally, I think that there was if there was a green asset bubble or an ESG asset bubble, it became inflationary, and we needed this pushback, you know, to kind of hit that refresh button and do it better. So when, when when you're assessing an asset manager to see if they're doing a good job, what are the red flags? What do you what do you like to see? What's essential to be there? Um, I mean, I, I, my first thing is is really to go with like just gut instinct, right? So it's not a, not the greatest answer, but um, it turns me off. I see red flags when I see aggressive marketing, when I start seeing superlatives, right? Um, so what I look for is in an asset manager, um, you know, is an approach that is commonsensical, understanding that in today's world, you have to define all terms. You have to, they, they, you know, what does ESG integration mean? You can't use that flippantly. So what I look for is that the asset manager um, is, is, is transparent um, and defines all terms, and it's everything. What exactly is the strategy, right? What is in the portfolio? What are the metrics that are being used? How do you, what type of data, right? When, when a company, you know, when NASA manager says that, that there's ESG integration, what data are you using and how you aggregate it? Right? Is it a combination of internal fundamental analysis plus external, you know, third-party, you know, data, and how is that all coming together? Right? Do you, Do you like to see both? I, I absolutely. You need to have both. Right? Yeah. So you don't you don't exclusively trust the third parties to to do a good enough job. You need your own work. Correct. I mean, right now we all know the problems with third-party ESG data. There is tremendous variance on methodologies. We know that you know ESG largely falls into two camps, right? It's one on financial materiality, and the other one is you know looking at negative externalities or impact, right? Adverse impact, effectively, right? And you know different a, um, uh, uh, data providers, you know, take different approaches. Um, sometimes it's just about financial materiality. Sometimes it's a combination, right? So because you you have on such variance in, in ESG data collection, it is absolutely incumbent on you to have a common sense check on what's going on here and ensure, right, that that aligns with, you know, you, your own approach as an asset manager and you're clear with what you're saying to your investors, right? There is a fiduciary rule, right? If you're telling investors, right, that you're making investments and it's all about financial materiality, about optimizing, reducing volatility, reducing risk, optimizing financial returns. You know, make sure that your data collection is very much on financial materiality. Don't confuse all these different methodologies. Um, so yeah, so that these these are the things that that I look for is just clear definitions, 
right? Clear disclosures and, um, you know, just um, matter of fact and objective marketing, right? Just fact-based, data-based, evidence-based marketing without the, you know, the use of too much rhetoric, exaggeration, and inflation on ESG capabilities. Final question from us, Desiree, because I appreciate it. We've, we've covered a huge amount of ground. If you could give advice to somebody starting in an asset manager as a sustainability officer, what would your advice be? What do you wish you had known going into it? And what would you like to impart to somebody else? Um, make sure you diligence you know, the firm's um, you know, uh, approach and commitment to ESG. Um, so you know that was my fatal mistake is not doing more homework on the management team I was working you know for um, and you know and, and, and you know ask some tough questions right it's it's easy enough for a company to say you know we want to go net zero or we're committed to going to net zero what exactly does that mean right is there an interim action plan and so you know I, I think it's that's what you know folks have to do here is just you know ask the hard questions Excellent. So that was Desiree Fixler. A lot to cover, a lot of ground. I mean, she kept talking after the mics finished rolling and unfortunately we won't go into that, but that would have been great to have some of that as well. But there was plenty in what we actually did have on the record for it. What were your key takeaways? She was very impressive. Uh, very matter of fact about about the, the issues facing you know, ESG and the asset management industry, you know, universally. I liked, firstly, I liked the fact that ESG statements are legally binding, you know, at least now that we've got the SEC involved. Uh, but that being said, I don't know about, you know, you, obviously you and I have been having a lot of conversations lately internally about the fines being issued to asset managers. They amount to little more than a slap on the wrist. You know, DWS, just a million and a half where Fixler worked. Uh, Goldman's, four million. These are not scary numbers for companies of this scale. Well, no, you, we say this, I mean, we're recording this on a day where on CY Selector, we're on the editor, we've put together a, a gallery of fines. And the ESG-related ones pale in comparison. So Allianz got a six billion fine for fraud, but that was to do with pension funds and their structured alpha products. So, yeah, the levies are difficult. But she did say, I mean, you are more likely to get people's attention with police raids than taxonomies, which really stood out to me. So it does seem that sort of punitive element is going to be much bigger. Yeah, the raid on DWS is the moment they they sort of all woke up. At least that's what she believes. It's tantamount to fraud. You know, the disconnect between the common sense practices became the thought ESG was more of a feeling rather than you know an absolute the origin being in those sort of philanthropic areas I hadn't really considered that that's where obviously it had all started um, but she felt that, that what's happened lately has put the pause button on the ESG rollout so in her mind it has been effective well I think one thing you mentioned there as well common sense I, I did do a, I mean I looked at the transcript the, the phrase common sense came up a lot and it seemed like something she was missing or thought was missing from the market was common sense. She definitely wasn't missing common sense, but she did seem to think that a lot of this is fairly obvious. If you're doing the right thing, you'll get the right returns, but it's so hard to prove you're doing the right thing or genuinely do the right thing, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that she said, which, which struck me is she felt there was more fear to challenging management now than, than when she started in the 90s, which is a massive disconnect between the narrative of empowerment from social change that, that we're fed daily yeah hugely because we're told all the time there's this big sentiment shift i know we've seen the likes of strive asset management and these groups coming in but she was when we spoke 
off the record she did suggest that that is largely marketing and it is cutting between what's genuine and what's marketing and i think i mean we're not going to resolve it in one podcast but it does seem like there is a lot of complex issues hopefully everyone's moving in the right direction but there's still a lot to do and 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 her the red flags of this sort of basis rhetoric heavy on the marketing no substance uh you and the requirement to have your own in-house screening competencies which Again, we have discussed, but you know that's that's the what she looks for when selecting an asset manager. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. That was Desiree Fixler on ESG and the mistakes that people make around that. I've been Chris Sloan. And I'm Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.